Ernest, I'm in the morgue. Why am I in the morgue? Shh, it's okay, it's okay. Listen to me. I understand now. It's incredible. It's physically impossible, but now I understand it. They think I'm dead. Yes, yes. yes. They think you're dead, but you're not dead. In the whole of recorded medical history, this has never happened to another single human being. Yes, so why did it have to happen to me? Do you know what you are, darling? You're a sign. You're an omen. You're a burning bush. I am? Of course you are. We're being told that we belong together. I'm being called. I'm being challenged. Don't you see, Madeline? It's a miracle! Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that is obsessed with clinging to the innocent days of youth and is resentful of the despair and decay that comes with aging. I'm Becky, the podcast host who never remembers where she parked the car. I'm Chris, the podcast host who would like to talk about Madeline Ashton. No! <laughs> and I'm the host most likely to say the word sexual without blushing. We're approaching winter, the days are getting shorter, and there's a chill in the air. A tingling down the spine that comes to us each morning when we look into the mirror and see ourselves farther and farther away from the glittering light of youth, staring back at a person we no longer recognize. Uh, did you find my journal? <laughs> Believe it or not, we're discussing a comedy today. We are revisiting the 1992 dark comedy, Death Becomes Her. The film, directed by Robert Zemeckis, is an over-the-top special effects bonanza about death, beauty, youth, women, friendship, greed, sex, revenge, vanity, Hollywood, camp, and aging. Bottoms up! <laughs> Back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning Cause we both be cynical or radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it'll suddenly suck? Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fast or will it be fun? But decades later will it still hold up? And this is when we were young When we were young now a warning. Now, now a warning? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is our most frightening episode yet, as we're sure to discuss how we each feel about no longer being considered young. Well, I guess our podcast is sort of uh, putting the past tense on that. However, <laughs> I object. <laughs> yeah, it was already a pain point. Now you're just poking the wound. Well, my opening question is, how do you feel about getting older? <laughs> now a warning? <laughs> I'll start. I remember when I was around 10 years old, I thought 16 years old was old. So I think age, just the goalposts keep moving because I'm 40 and I would like to think that 40 isn't old, you know, because you keep thinking, oh, 65 is old. And when I'm 65, I hopefully will think, well, 85 is old, you know. I think you're exactly right. Our kind of frame of reference for what old is shifts at different points in our life. As a kid, I'm sure I felt the same way, where anyone even slightly older was like, that's an old person. Mm -hmm. Well, I am 76 years old, <laughs> but I only like 38, apparently, just like Isabella Rossellini in this movie. <laughs> I've often thought of you as just like Isabella. Thank you. That's definitely a compliment. <laughs> I feel like I have a different take on aging than most people, because I always was concerned about aging immediately. 
I think one of the reasons that I liked this movie growing up was that I could relate to that theme. I never felt young. And I never didn't worry about my age and time passing and have always been anxious about the number, even when it was a lower number than it is currently. And that hasn't really changed. Of course, like when you actually get older, it is different than you like imagine and or you felt about it like when you were younger. And I did have things when I was younger, like I would hear someone say like, oh, someone died at age 50. That's so young. And I would think something like, oh, that's not because I still (laughs) that's not actually young. It is young to die. But like when people would say, oh, that's so young, it just like wasn't the right word for me. You know, Mm -hmm. it was just like that's too soon would make sense. And I still feel like I've always had kind of a messed up (laughs) approach to just thinking about this. Not good is is. (laughs) The answer, the short answer, I've never felt good about it. And I still don't now that it's like, you know, happening more. But I think when you do start getting to the actual like middle, supposedly of your life, which is kind of where we all are right now, you do kind of sense now is the time when things that you've been aware of coming like health problems like can actually start happening and and you see people around you that like might be you know sick or even dying sometimes you know like that's just a much more common thing for someone this age or family members you know because they are getting older too so i have noticed it more especially in the last like couple of years because you know we've lived through a pretty dramatic time and i think that maybe got a lot of people thinking more about mortality and just for a while like living you know isolated and alone during the pandemic like it made me feel like an actual like very old person Hmm. for a long time and being kind of like afraid of like other people you know getting too close to other people and and keeping a distance and and worrying about health all the time and in a way, I feel like that mentality stuck with me a little bit. And that experience did, I feel like, give me a feeling of being much older than outsiders would say that I am and like what most people would think that someone my age should feel. I feel much, much older than I am. I don't know. I mean, like my more serious answer is I have been described as an old soul by people in my life for my entire life, literally as long as I can remember. And some of that was down to like precociousness, but some of it is also just, I don't know, I've always felt like I have a different relationship to time than most other people. And so when I was a kid, those birthdays, I feel like I was counting them very carefully with such anticipation, such expectation that with each new number, things would be really, really different. But I really quickly learned that that wasn't the case and that the same things that kind of worry you or vex you in life, sometimes those just remain with you and don't really change. And as the years have gone on, like really from my adolescence onward, having so much experience with anxiety and depression, I've really had to reckon with the idea of mortality in a lot of ways that most people at that age didn't have to unless they had deaths of close loved ones. But for whatever reason, not having as much constant anxiety about mortality, Chris, like you seem to maybe have had, I quickly grew kind of less attached to aging and like thinking about my growth in terms of like how old I am or even things like trying to make New Year's resolutions. A lot of humans' attachment to time, I think, is just very arbitrary and just for the purpose of kind of crafting the story that we tell ourselves about what we are and what we want. That aspect of it was never as interesting for me and didn't hold the meaning for me that it seemed to hold for most other people. In the past few years in the wake of the pandemic and everything, I have known more people in my life that have come to a similar mindset. 
who might have been the type of people who, like, if they had Christmas plans or something and those Christmas plans were thrown off one time, that would be a complete wreck, you know, or something like that, who've kind of changed their mind in more recent years because of that kind of relative isolation or just alone time that a lot of people have had. You are now older than you were when we first started recording this podcast. (laughs) Thanks. That's pretty mind-blowing. That's pretty mind-blowing. I didn't know that. I did want to mention also, just because I feel like it's, like, mildly connected to, like, our podcast, just because I see all these, I'm sure we all do, memes, like, look at this band and how old they are. Don't you feel old now? Or this Mm -hmm. came out this many years ago. Don't you feel old now? I mean, we've said things like that, too, you know, like, when we're covering movies that were 25 years ago or 35 years ago, and, you know, we'll be like, oh, my gosh, that makes me feel old. But I do notice that that becomes like such a thing. And it's all generations because I see like people my parents age sharing those kinds of things too. And I feel like people take kind of a weird form of comfort in sharing those things and like collectively like having that experience of like, oh, we're old. But I always find it just horrifying and annoying when people do that. (laughs) Just for the record. So I think that's exactly like parallel to what I'm talking about. And I am exactly as weirded out by all those memes. And I mean, like even beyond the point of knowing they're clickbait, Mm -hmm. there's something in that that certain type of person really, really digs. And I do not understand the appeal. Because I do think it's a mentality like and especially a few years ago, I would really resist it and be like, "Ah, you're only as old as you feel. And I do not share it your feeling of oldness, you know, now I'm a little bit less um, standoffish about it. But yeah, I mean, I do think that it becomes kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy if you just keep doing that. And and at a certain point, it's like, yeah, it's like, that's life. Like, what, what did you expect? Like, everyone ages and it's not going to change. So I'm not surprised that other people have <laughs> aged as well. Yeah. <laughs> not shocking. So guys, this is our seventh movie on the podcast directed by Robert Zemeckis. Oh my God, I feel old. (laughs) I think we've now beat Spielberg uh, with how many movies. I believe it's six for Spielberg and now seven for Zemeckis. Mm -hmm. You would have thought we'd been Zemeked out by now. Nope. There's more Zemeck to go around. (laughs) Is that something? Anyway, Death Becomes Her was directed by Robert Zemeckis. It was written by Martin Donovan and David Kep. Death Becomes Her stars Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, Bruce Willis, and Isabella Rossellini. It was released July 31st, 1992. The budget was $55 million, and the box office was $58 million domestically, $149 million worldwide. It's a worldwide hit. Yeah, a that's worldwide a, hit. Yeah. Not a, not a domestic. It's not like a smash hit. It made $3 million in America. <laughs> so. Yeah, but I mean, it obviously has had a life, you know, and I think it was like yeah. one of those movies that was a hit on video. So I think it definitely did fine. But I don't think it was seen as a hit like immediately after it came out. I think it was kind of more middling. like And definitely not a blockbuster like Zemeckis has often had. Mm-hmm. It won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects, beating out Batman Returns. Mixed feelings about that, but okay. Yeah, we'll allow it. The plot of Death Becomes Her, to sum it up pretty briefly, Madeline Ashton and Helen Sharp are mortal frenemies and rivals who drink a potion that keeps them immortally youthful and codependent on one another. The reviews of this movie, it was pretty negatively reviewed (laughs) across the board. I remember that, actually. I mean, I think that's what I was referring to when I said it wasn't a hit. It's like I remember, like, reading things at the time that were unkind and just kind of that general sense in the air that like this was not a like great film or a, like a, a super hit. Yeah, Siskel and Ebert gave uh, they both gave a, a thumbs down. They commented that while the film had great special effects, it lacked any real substance or character depth. 
Jay Boyar from the Orlando Sentinel said, This new horror comedy has to be one of the most heartless mainstream pictures ever made. Meanwhile, Dave Kerr of the Chicago Tribune said of the film, It is instantly grotesque, relentlessly misanthropic, and spectacularly tasteless. Death Becomes Her isn't a film designed to win the hearts of the mass movie-going public, but it is diabolically inventive and very, very funny. So that was a good review. <laughs> yeah, that's a rave review in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Some trivia about the movie. Uh, Bruce Willis replaced Kevin Klein. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> I can see it for sure. I can totally see it. I think it would be very different as a movie. Really? I think a Kevin Klein dynamic with those two actresses would be very different. I definitely see it. And I almost, maybe I like it more. I don't know. I, w- I guess I would have to see it, but I like it. <laughs> so just so everyone is aware, Meryl was 43 and Goldie Hawn was 46 when making this movie. So elderly. <laughs> yeah. By Hollywood standards. By Hollywood standards. How are they able to stand and deliver their lines? Do if- people that old <laughs> even have legs? This is something I'm sure both of you will like. Maybe Chris Moore. During filming, Robert Zemeckis had a tendency to say, hold on to your butts. <laughs> I do. I do like that. Screenwriter David Kep wrote Jurassic Park and he inserted Robert Zemeckis's catchphrase into Jurassic Park. I did not know. That's where that came from. That's good. It is very much a non sequitur in Jurassic Park. <laughs> and is. I love that connection. <laughs> That's so amazing. And one of my other hosts most likely to is with Isabella Rossellini's line, keep your ass handy. And I was wondering was if that, that was Isabella related. Rosalie? Is that yeah, it was. <laughs> At least her accent in that movie. But it, it was that to me, keep your ass handy is a lot like hold on to your butts. Mm-hmm. But she winks when she says it. You kind of have to do the wink if you're gonna really sell that line. Yeah, one's like to say to sexy himbos, and one is to say about dinosaurs. <laughs> Connected to Jurassic Park, the digital advancements on Death Becomes Her were incorporated into Industrial Light and Magic's next project, which was Jurassic Park. I do love the raptor with the hole in its stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Meryl Streep um, wanted to sign up for the movie the second she read the script, but she admitted afterwards that she disliked working on a project that focused so heavily on special effects, and she vowed never to work on another film with heavy special effects again. She said to Entertainment Weekly, I think it's tedious. Whatever concentration you can apply to that kind of comedy is just shredded. You stand there like a piece of machinery. They should get machinery to do it. I loved how it turned out, but it's not fun to act to a lampstand. Pretend this is Goldie. Oh, I'm sorry, Bob. She went off by the mark by five centimeters and now her head won't match her neck. It was like being at the dentist. Well, now they have replaced it with machinery. <laughs> how do you like yourself yeah, now, Meryl? AI. There is an alternate ending that they changed before the movie was released. It featured Tracy Ullman. What? Ernest leaves the party, meets a bartender played by Tracy Ullman, who helps him fake his death. And then Helen and Madeline encounter them 27 years later, living happily. And Zemeckis thought the ending was too happy and he wanted a darker ending. So I'd love to know, did you watch this movie growing up? When is the last time you watched it? How did you feel about it then? Did not see this movie growing up. I know because we've covered so much Zemeckis ground here that a lot of the other Zemeckis movies were mainstays in my house. Never really saw many of them in theaters until like Contact, I would say. I don't really remember the first time I watched it either because I don't remember seeing it in high school, which was one of those like times in my life when I rapidly sought out movies that seemed more sophisticated. And this movie always seemed kind of more sophisticated to me. So I may not have seen it actually until college. A lot of the people that I was friends with in college, I mean, obviously were film buffs and loved, loved Death Becomes Her. 
So yeah, I, I don't know. It might have been like one of those DVDs I got order I ordered from Netflix, like one of the when they were still renting out physical media. That might have been one of the ones I watched in that in that way. Which was only until two months ago they were doing that. They finally oh, stopped true. this year. I almost got to the end. Really? I'm few, yeah. I'm a, I'm a few years shy. Oh, I was like one year, shy, maybe even less, like six months shy. You could have left so many DVDs. I could, well, one, because <laughs> I had one at a time. From the first time I watched it, I knew it was a brilliant movie and like exactly fits my very dark taste in comedy. By the time I got to college, my taste in film, you know, was pretty set. And especially just my love for really dark comedies. And yeah, I, I loved it from the first time I saw it. I remember exactly my first experience watching this because for some reason, my memories of going to the drive-in with my family are all very distinct. Like I tend to remember like which movies I saw in that experience. I'm not exactly sure why that's so more memorable, but I it was. I think because it's exceptional, probably. That's definitely more memorable. Yeah. So this was a drive-in movie. That's so cool. Yeah. With your family? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Was it awkward? Yes. <laughs> Because there is a whole sex-like element to this. Yes. So. Oh, is there? <laughs> it is an interesting film to watch when you're eight or nine years old and you are... Trapped very, in a car. <laughs> trapped in a car in close proximity with your parents <laughs> and your younger sister. But I'm pretty sure they would not have taken me to it if they had seen the movie before. <laughs> it kind of looks like a goofier... And parts of it are, but, you know, the adult parts are maybe not as obvious in, like, a trailer or something. It's rated PG-13, but there is, like, some actual nudity, which is fairly rare for a PG-13. Some kind of grisly violence in it as well. So, I mean, it is one of the more mature movies that I saw for a long time. It's a robust (laughs) PG-13. It really is. (laughs) I don't know that I loved the movie like immediately i think i liked parts and maybe was more like intrigued by parts i think i liked it but i was also confused by some of the adult themes like i was attracted to them but also just like it was kind of overwhelming i feel like the story like it was just like so adult that like i kind of picked up on things but then bought it on vhs when it was released because i'd already seen it so then it was okay i guess for me to continue watching it not in widescreen because i don't think it was available Pan and scan, baby. It might have been at some point, but I bought it, like, I think fairly early, like, after it came out. So at that point, you know, VHS renters were less sophisticated and there weren't (laughs) as many letterbox editions. So I would, you know, then watch it, you know, fairly often. And I feel like I got a lot of adult (laughs) context for things out of this movie because it was one of the only movies dealing with themes like this that I would have seen at this time, Mm. I think, for quite a few years, probably. Like, just, like, these kinds of relationships, like a female rivalry and a marriage that was, like, this and themes of like aging that are kind of actually quite serious even though they're treated in a funny way and and mortality like this i feel like was kind of a gateway into i don't know what like just kind of a darkness i think and i can't think of very many other dark comedies that i 
really watched around this time or even liked around this time. So I do feel like this kind of set the tone for a certain kind of darkness in comedy and adult storytelling, like like stories that are just about like grown up people doing very grown up things, albeit in like kind of a silly way in this movie. But, you know, if you take away like the fantasy part of this movie, there is still like a weird story about cheating on your husband and killing the wife and bitterness and alcoholism. So you could do this as a, you know, a drama, you know. Well, and like stealing husbands. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Like... Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of very adult things. So yeah, I always appreciated it. I remember also distinctly like being disturbed by images like the charred hand in the fantasy sequence. Mm-hmm. Meryl Streep, like she's been killed in the car accident in the fantasy. The man whose legs are bleeding in the hospital. The blood in the surgery scenes. It was like very medical violence that I also wasn't used to <laughs> at this age. So like my memory of this movie is kind of being intrigued and like also repulsed by it at the same time. <laughs> I love that. And I can totally see how it shaped your taste in comedy for better or worse I watched this movie all the time growing up this was a stolen pay-per-view movie so I would just watch it on repeat several times a week This was 1992. I was 10. This is when I started getting into the Oscars because I loved the special effects so much. I remember thinking like what I wanted to be when I grew up was like a special effects producer because I was just obsessed with the special effects in this movie. And I remember watching the Oscars that year. And that may have been the first time I watched the Oscars. I guess I was 11 if this came out when I was 10. And it won. And I remember being really excited. And then the next year, I definitely watched the Oscars because I was like, Jurassic Park has to win everything because I didn't understand nominations. And it should have. And it should have. I remember when Best Picture was announced, I was like, Jurassic Park! (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, like, understand nominations. So this was the first year I watched the Oscars, and it was because of this movie. Like, I just loved this movie, watched it all the time. I think that my end to it was the special effects, but once I was, like, there, I was then got into just, like, the characters and the dialogue, and, like, I just... Really, really always loved this movie. Had it on VHS um, probably when we no longer had stolen pay-per-view because maybe they realized we were still it. Um, I, <laughs> I bought it on VHS. I watched it all the time. Loved this movie growing up. I've seen it every so often. I don't think I own it on DVD anymore, but it's just like one of those that's always on streaming now that like I check in once in a while. But to be perfectly honest, like I watched it this time and I just know every line. <laughs> I don't, like, need to watch it. It's, like, running in my head. <laughs> what? What is it? What's the matter? It's, uh... Well, it's interesting. It's, uh... Okie dokie. I, I think that just about uh, covers it. Uh, I wonder if I might have a little sip of that. Yes, of course. Well, I'll tell you what, kids. Uh, we, there's a kind of odd thing here. You, your wrist, as far as I can tell, is, uh... It's fractured in three places and uh you've shattered the two vertebrae because i can't really be certain without an x-ray but uh, the the bone protrusion through the skin that that's not a good sign and uh your body temperature's below 80 and your 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 heart stopped beating what the hell does that mean exactly exactly what i think i'm gonna get a second page Doctor! So what did you guys think of Death Becomes Her now? Does Death Become Her? Death Becomes Her all day long. (laughs) I mean, like, 
I just wrote like this movie is a literally perfect movie to me. Like, okay, good. Spoiler, me too. Yeah, <laughs> Chris hate it. No, that's why. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to get to the the heart of it is that we all yeah like this we got to get to the end. You can turn off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's over. That was a good one. That was a good one, guys. <laughs> On every level, this movie is a set of achievements in the craft of filmmaking from the casting, which to me is just spot on and brilliant the writing which is i mean just like was always self-evidently brilliant but now especially at my age watching it there is a lot in this just making fun of hollywood and hollywood superficiality and obsession with women's looks but really like kind of deeply reckoning with age and what is required to enjoy your life at any age but especially when you're older. It was both funnier and deeper this time watching it than it has ever been before for me. And also just the the achievements in special effects, both in terms of the practical effects. Like I watched a lot of featurettes that I found online about this and like learning it was both animatronics and CGI kind of simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these things became almost taken for granted in filmmaking, but they were basically things that Robert Zemeckis kind of like made up on the fly and was like, oh, can we do this with this? Let's let's try it. A couple lessons from this. One is that I at one point thought of myself as a Zemeckis disliker. And I don't know, maybe it's because he did the really bad, like all CGI movies later on. But the track record, especially among the movies that we've covered, is pretty great. Yes, as a Zemeckis defender. And this is the movie that he did immediately after Roger Rabbit, which is insane to me because they are both such brilliant movies that it blows my mind. Like, and, and I absolutely think this movie is brilliant on the level of Roger Rabbit. But this also packed, like, again, just a very unexpected emotional punch to me that Roger Rabbit doesn't necessarily have. So, yeah, I really just think it's brilliant. And I loved it more than ever this time. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting blend of something that was very modern at the time, which was the special effects and just that kind of experimentation that Zemeckis especially was, like, really into at the time of, like, wow, you're going to come to the movie and see something that you've never seen before, which is what this was sold as and I think why people went to see it. Probably why my parents took me to see it and why I, as an eight-year-old, wanted to see a movie about an alcoholic man and the two women who were, like, fighting over him. Like, normally I wouldn't have seen that movie, but I did because of the special effects. So, like, blending that, like, very modern sense with something that feels very, very classic. Like, this is basically, like, a take on Sunset Boulevard, kind of, with, like, an aging actress, you know, and in this case, also an aging writer. But, like, these very, like, Norma Desmond-esque characters who, in that movie, she's, like, very monstrous and ends up killing some one so like that darkness of like sunset boulevard like using the aging actress as a monster and like making it this horror comedy thing and it's almost like both a 50s horror movie and a 50s studio comedy all at the same time Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's definitely like blending a lot of genres and the script is just so dense and also just the performances and the the direction because they're all working together but i mean the script has a ton of jokes in it like almost every line is funny and there's something going on in every scene that's funny. Can I interrupt you? So I was looking up quotes on IMDb for my host most likely and practically the whole movie is there. Practically the whole movie <laughs> is qu- not just quotable, but like one thing that really rang with me this time is almost every line has 
two completely different meanings to it simultaneously where like one level is the joke of the comedy of it but then the other level is like oh no this is this is about like someone who's desperately anxious and fearful about the fact that they're aging Mm -hmm. yeah and so there's just so much going on and it's very very hard to actually like pack that much into a script I know like as a writer that you can do it but it's hard to pull it off and to get the performances at the level that they actually can sell like zinger after zinger without breaking or just like not kind of pulling it off and then the direction is also very witty in that way there's a lot of like visual things that are filmed in a funny way so it's just like everyone is clearly working together at the same tone and yet it's a very unusual tone that's mixing horror and comedy and soap opera drama like some surreal moments like all kinds of different things <laughs> and yet like everyone always seems to be on the same page about like what kind of movie they're they're doing and you know there's not really like an off performance or like a scene that feels like, oh, this isn't really the tone or yes, whatever. Like, th- it's, like, there's not a single note played out of tune or out of place in this. Yeah, so I agree with you guys completely. I think this movie super holds up. If anything, I think it may be better now. I mean, now that we're older or just... No, I think this is the kind of movie that, like, would have found more of an audience now if it was released, like on some like streaming service or something like that. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's a more popular appetite for movies with very, very complicated or multiple different weird tones together. That kind of, I mean, now it might be described as like quirkiness in another context, but like I can totally understand why it wasn't a huge box office smash in America. What I focused on this time, because I knew I was going to like it, but I've never like watched it with like an analytical mind. What I really liked this time was the economy of the writing. You get how people have changed and their relationship to one another has changed very quickly. I love when Helen and Ernest come backstage to meet Madeline and (laughs) almost immediately we jump cut to them getting married and then we jump cut again to them hating each other. And they never say, I hate you. You never see them fighting, but we know immediately something is wrong because he didn't sleep in the bed next to her. Just the way that the characters are talking around what's happening, like real people do. People don't just like say exposition like, oh, ever since he started sleeping upstairs, like, you know, and drinking all the time. Like we just see him be given a Bloody Mary and an aspirin as his breakfast. And we see like in the background bottles, like we don't need to be like hit over the head with this information that I feel like a lesser movie would have just spelled all this out for us but I think the writing and his direction together there's just such a good economy of writing and we don't even have to know everything about Helen and Madeline's friendship but we just get them almost immediately we get they don't really like each other (laughs) like they say they're friends but they don't really like each other nobody has to say to another person I hate her and I'm only friends with her because of blah 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 Mad? I don't believe it, Helen, darling. Twelve years, twelve long years, and look at you. You have a waist. Oh, you haven't changed. Oh, gosh, I'm glad you came. I didn't know if you would. I spoke to my PR woman, and she said Madeline Ashton goes to the opening of an envelope. Oh, those people can be so cruel. Mm. I fired her. Well, I almost fired her. 
I just really, really loved the writing and it like genuinely made me laugh. They don't have best friends that they're like, most movies would oh do God, like, yes. they're like, oh, like Meryl Streep explains her side to her yeah. best friend. To like I, Sarah Silverman <laughs> or like Wanda Sykes. Yeah, the closest <laughs> thing is he- is Helen saying to Ernst, like, you don't know her. She doesn't get more specific than that. And I don't think we need that. And also like, I felt like I already got that before she even said it. Yes. So it didn't feel like she was feeding me information. It was just felt like she was like emphasizing. It was to set up the punchline of like the jump cut to now they're married and and to show not tell which is like Mm -hmm. this movie epitomizes that i totally agree with that point becky and i really appreciated the same thing just the economy of storytelling and the amount that's packed into every single visual frame of it that feels like a callback to like 50s era hollywood studio like the pictures you know, like that kind of very old school, classic Hollywood filmmaking. The Wit is very Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder yes. did that a lot too. And he's yes. the director and writer of Sunset Boulevard. So Absolutely. it makes sense. But also like The Apartment, some like it hot. So And like when you watch one of his movies, it's the same thing where it's like every line is like accomplishing three different things. And they're all just like... Boom, 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 like funny like this. Like this really feels like a Billy Wilder movie. I love the scene where Helen and Madeline are fighting and they're all like fucked up. Their bodies are all fucked up. And just like the beats that their fight goes through. And then at some point, one of them is confessing something. And so it's a quiet beat and Helen just sits down on the couch and the shovel like goes through her hole in her center. But like she doesn't even pay attention to it. And so like we're having this moment of this conversation, but we're also getting like the special effects. But it's not like thrown in your face it's just like oh she just happens to sit in that way and the shovel's there much like how i felt with roger rabbit it just felt like he was showing off what he could do yeah the movie waits until that scene to really give us the backstory of those two characters like they're fighting and then we actually learn like kind of what their past is which was like madeline was like she's from newark for god's sake um (laughs) and she was like considered like kind of like trashy at her school And Helen, it sounds like, was, like, more of a, like, moneyed girl and had, like, more friends and stuff. So then Madeline kind of used her, like, sex appeal to steal all of Helen's boyfriends. But at some point, they were also, like, became friends at this point. So you actually do kind of learn that. But, like, I feel like a lot of movies would have, like, had, like, the flashback scene in the beginning. And there's already so much, like... You know, we skipped seven years, like, a couple of times. There's already a lot of story to go through, so it's probably good. Although I do kind of want to see, like, little, like, 12-year-old, I don't know. Sure. Mad how. One of the Gummer children <laughs> playing a young man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Kate Hudson. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's oh, right. my God. Prequel. 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 <laughs> Birth becomes her. Oh, <laughs> One of the first big notes for me that I wanted to highlight was in the exact vein, Becky, of what you're talking about, where she sits on the couch and the thing goes through her, like the shot through the shot. In other words, the the two shot of Madeline and Ernest that's framed by the hole mm-hmm. blown in Helen's chest by an elephant gun. Is that when she like comes out of the pool? Yes. Yeah. Look at me, Ernest. Just look at me. I'm soaking wet. And there seems to be something wrong with your, uh, blouse. Oh, I have a a hole in my stomach. Oh, I have a hole in my stomach. Yeah, and you're still alive. That's another miracle! I think it's one of the most ingenious, gory moments in any movie ever made, ever made. 
And I think that whole sequence is maybe one of the most brilliant stretches. And of course, like every line of this movie is very weighted, but especially that entire sequence, like leading up to Meryl shooting her with the elephant gun and like the back and forth and tete-a-tete that they have. It's just both an excellent horror movie and a brilliant comedy at the same time. And I think that's just so impressive. Ernest, just look at me. Just look at me. I'm soaking wet. <laughs> like, guys, what's your favorite quote in this movie? <laughs> there are too many. I really do like now a warning. That which I talk, I, I throw great. that into regular conversation. I think a lot. that's the one. I mean, that is probably the number one, just the delivery of yeah, that. It's one of my favorite line readings ever. <sighs> now a warning. Now a warning? Take care of yourself. You and your body are going to be together a long time. Be good to it. Sempre viva. Live forever. Second place, I'm a girl. (laughs) That one's good. I mean, I love the opening musical number. Oh, that's pretty great. I love that it's, like, the most ludicrous performance ever that is also, like, disco. (laughs) I know it's, like, 1978 or something, right? Like, don't they say what the year is? I love Helen's line, I will not speak to you until you put your head on straight. (laughs) No. It's so good, guys. Yeah, I love the way that, and their names are Madeline and Helen, so they refer to each other as Mad and Hell. I remember... Getting that when I was yeah. 10, I thought I was very smart to get that. Not only that, but I recognize this time, Ernest, they shortened to earn, like, but like U R N. Yeah, like an urn. Like an urn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Urn. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's again, and it's so brilliant because I've seen that movie so many times, and the nickname stuff only really got to me this time. I love the costuming in this movie. Yes. The costuming is brilliant. Um, now I want to be Isabella Rosalini's character for Halloween and just have the little like sarong around my waist and all the necklaces on my boobs. Oh, and also I'd have go her with body. the big collar jacket. <laughs> the collar jacket. That one looks yeah. pretty comfy. No, the necklaces covering her boobs is so iconic with her little like 1920s haircut. The costuming and set design, like all of the production design elements, but and the costuming too is just so brilliant in this. Oh wait. Does that work out that she would have been like a flapper and that's why her hair is like that? It could have. She would have been born in the 20s if she was really... She would have been a very young, like a six-year-old flapper. But (laughs) sure, she she believe that. Now that's a movie I want to see. Isabella Rossellini as a (laughs) six-year-old flapper. I love every look. I feel like every look... Like, no wonder drag queens love this movie because every look is so good. I feel like they chose the right costumes for the effects that were coming. Like, just the thing that they put Meryl in where she's like in a black bodysuit with a low neck. And yeah... (laughs) And the shawl they put over her, which is so kind of like unique looking, but it does like, I'm sure, hide parts of the special effects. I just felt like, like we said before, every department was like working together so well and collaborating so well that nothing felt out of place and everything felt like the costuming is serving the special effects. The performances are serving this like everything works so well. Yeah. And before the transformation, when she's going to the um, castle and meeting Isabella Rossellini, like what she's wearing there and the makeup, like they do yeah. a great job of making her look old in that scene and she's like wet. Yeah. What is that? What you came for? A touch of magic in this world obsessed with science. 
Tonic? A potion. What does it do? How old would you guess I am? I wouldn't. Come on, don't try to flatter me. 38. Oh, 28. Three? 23. I am 71 years old. That's what it does. It stops the aging process dead in its tracks and forces it into retreat. Drink that potion and you'll never grow even one day older. Don't drink it and continue to watch yourself rot. How much is it? So, like, you really do see the transformation, and especially in that scene where she, like, literally, like, transforms and becomes younger in the mirror. I don't know if that was CGI. Oh, I can tell you the boob part is that they had built this machinery that was going to push her boobs up, but it just didn't look right. So her her dresser just literally went behind her and pushed up her boobs with her hands. (laughs) The magic of cinema. Yeah. (laughs) I was wondering about the boobs. When are you not? <laughs> yeah. And I think that part, at least part of that is like also a lighting change that they just like light yeah. her in a much like lighter yeah. way so that she looks younger. But like, it's just amazing, like lighting and makeup and and the way that all those things work together with, you know, the new technology. Yeah. I mean, just Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep are so fucking phenomenal together. They are such a pair. This was my first Meryl movie, I think. Yeah, I think it was for me, too. And it really colored my perception of (laughs) her and Bruce Willis. I think this was my first Mm -hmm. Bruce Willis movie, too. So I always thought of him as a (laughs) fuddy-duddy, which was the opposite of his image, really, at at this time. You know, he was the star of Die Hard, but I had not seen Die Hard. So, like, for me, I was like, oh, Bruce Willis, that, like, nerdy, like, loser. (laughs) The affable nerd loser. Right, him. I think I agree with you. I miss this time of Bruce Willis's career when it felt like he was a character actor. There's the action hero part. There's the character actor part. And I felt like in his latter career that he was just picking things and there wasn't really like a soul in his performances. I know that he's been dealing with health challenges the last few years. So I'm not counting like the most recent, you know, last few years, like the B movies that he has been cast in. But no, he felt checked out even, I think. Yeah. For many years. Pretty notoriously so. Yeah. Yeah. And so seeing this again was like, oh yeah, like he's, he's such an interesting actor. I think he's so great in this. Yeah. He's fantastic in this. I forget he's he's Bruce Willis. Because when you think Bruce Willis, you think bald like pulp fiction or die hard you think this like macho guy and he does such a good performance in this that i'm like oh yeah it's him and it's so fit like it's such a physical performance too but he's also the straight man against meryl streep and goldie hawn yeah i i think his performance is great and i think this movie relies on all three of them really showing up and god do they ever this should be like one of the classic love triangle movies (laughs) so his character seems like he's like the moral center but he does straight up murder his wife (laughs) which is something i've recognized in this viewing of it right he just does straight up murder his wife. Oh, I don't think he's the moral... I don't think he's any kind of moral center. I mean, he kind of is because at the end, besides the murdering of his wife, he... <laughs> if you can overlook that. If you can overlook that, he's, like, seen as, like, he learns 
he learns the lesson about aging and and what it really means to live forever. And he's seen as a a good guy at the end who lived a great life. Well, but I think the point of the movie and the point of the story is that it's only after he was away from those women in that horrible love triangle that he like started his like real life. Because what the preacher guy talks about in the eulogy is like, we didn't know him for his first 50 years of life. I don't think he's a good person or the moral center of the movie until until after the point when the story in this movie is told. He's the relative moral. <laughs> uh, we basically have three characters, and of them, he is the most... I wouldn't actually say he's the most sympathetic, necessarily, but he is the n- nicest person, I guess, or the most gentle, the least threatening person. But besides the murdering of his wife, he is very much like a person you want to root for, and he still is, and that's why I found it funny in this viewing of it, where I was like, yes, she was annoying you greatly, but you don't strangle your wife. I do think... <laughs> I think that the movie kind of is cheating a little bit with that ending of just being like you're supposed to kind of forget it or kind of like, well, she didn't really die because she had taken the potion. So you're not right. Like if she (laughs) had just died, I think you'd feel differently about his character. But because it's like, you know, what happens? It's like, okay, I guess it was fine that he did that. I think it would have to if it were made today. He's not choking her. Maybe he does push her like like the little tap. But like he wouldn't choke her. I don't know. I'm sure you're correct that if it were made in a modern context, that that would have to not be the case. But it's a comedic occurrence. And I don't think the movie wants us to root for Ernest. I think Ernest is such a fuddy-duddy who never stands up for himself. Or at least the reaction I had to him was like, come on, like literally fucking stand up for yourself one time. And he cannot do it for most of the movie. And everything in this movie is so heightened and exaggerated and, you know, pushed to the nth degree from the costuming to the set design, like every part of it. That it's clearly not intended to seriously depict someone methodically deciding to murder his wife. Yeah, I don't think it's showing that. I think it it just has a moment where he fights back in a violent way. But yeah. you forget about that because the rest of it is so funny and he's seen as the good guy. That's yeah. where I don't... I, again, I think it's only good, relatively speaking, but I don't think in any way that he's being put forward as like he's a hero of this movie. I actually thought about this. I ranked the three characters on morality like just <laughs> while like watching it because I was like, who actually is the best? And I would put <laughs> Helen as the worst. Helen is the worst. Helen is the worst. Ernest in the middle, and then Madeline, the most moral, again, very relative. Okay, because yes. because Madeline just cares about aging or not aging. Like, it's all yes. self-inflicted hate, really. Mm-hmm. She's also the meanest, because Helen plots Madeline's murder. So she's, like, actively, like, mm-hmm. attempting to have murder happen. Ernest pushes her in an opportune moment. So he's not, it's not really premeditated, but he takes the opportunity to push her down. And Madeline doesn't kill anyone until she learns that Helen was trying to kill her. And then she shoots her through the stomach. So again, they're not, none of them are like exemplary humans. But but. also, like, you're not taking into the calculus here that Madeline perpetually verbally destroys Ernest. Literally, an excuse for murder. (laughs) I'm not using that as an excuse for murder. I'm saying that, morally speaking, she's, like, actively trying to ruin someone every time they speak together. They just have a bad marriage. It's very toxic. It's a toxic marriage, but he shouldn't kill her. (laughs) I think a little mild murder is completely appropriate in this scenario.
But I'm also <laughs> just like, for me, like Madeline is the center of the movie. Like I'm rooting for her as much as I'm like, also she's terrible, but like Meryl Streep's performance in this movie is so good. And it's obviously boring to say Meryl Streep is great in a movie, <laughs> but like, but she is, she's great in many movies, but I feel like this is one of her best performances and most underrated because she's bringing a lot to it. She's doing a lot. There are so many like lines and moments that I notice where she's just doing more than like a lot of actors would do more than this on the page just the her delivery of lines is like giving you layers of different things and i think that's why so many lines of this movie are so quotable is that she's never doing it like the most obvious way or just kind of giving you like the line as written you know like yes a lot of these lines are not necessarily funny like to read them but it's like the delivery and everything is f- funny telling about telling you it doesn't hurt <laughs> <laughs> just like 500 lines she says mm-hmm. why did it have to happen to me <laughs> Yeah, almost every line she does is like something that you can like quote and it's mm-hmm. it's just memorable. And like Becky, I had almost every line in this movie in my head. Like I already know exactly how they're going to be delivered because they are so well done that they just stuck in my mind for all these years. Yeah. And I mean, I would love to talk about specifically one of one of. I think the most memorable moments in this movie is after Ernest pushes her down the staircase and her Mm -hmm. head is backwards and like upside down. And she spends much of the rest of the scene engaged with talking with him with her head backwards and upside down. It's not upside down. At one point it is, but then she like leans forward to like knock it back in place. But I got some DBH facts. The idea of having Madeline have her head on backwards was Robert Zemeckis's idea, and it was kind of like a creative challenge to himself and the whole team. So we asked the writer David Kep to write two pages of that staircase scene that were already there, kind of rewrite them to where Madeline has her head on backwards. I think that's easily one of the most memorable images of this movie. Madeline, look at yourself! Huh? Look at yourself! Ernest! My ass! I can see! My ass! And there's something really wrong with your neck, too. I would say so. I would frigging well say so. Obviously, there's a lot of CGI there, but also most of it is practical. They used animatronics and stuff like that. And I still think it looks really good, but I bet it looked incredible in the theater, like on film. I watched this on a streaming network, so I think it's been like cleaned up a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still think it looks great, but it looked better on my fuzzy VHS. Yes, (laughs) exactly exactly to that point. Like I, you can definitely tell it's been cleaned up or remastered and not in the good way of remastering where they keep some of that grain. Yeah, it's just because then you can, then I could actually tell for the first time that her head is in effect. But when I remember seeing it on VHS, I was like, I don't know how they did this. This is blowing my mind. Like, because, you know, it covered up some of those lines. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm a photo editor by profession. And one of my biggest pet peeves about the way that all of these studios approach remastering and re-releasing titles, like especially ones like this that are this effects intensive, is that they don't take the care and the time to really go back into those parts of effects specifically and make them look better for the media where it's ending up. Mm-hmm. You know, because these companies all know that it's going to end up on streaming 
streaming that most people are going to be watching them on, you know, HDTVs or on on their phones or on, you know, TVs of various quality. It's weird because you love the fact that movies this good and movies like this are re-released. But every time, almost every time, they're remastered in a way that makes the scenes more apparent. Mm-hmm. I love that scene. I love that scene so much. It's so funny. I love every scene. I love this movie. Yeah. Guys, there's going to be a Death Becomes Her musical. It is in development in Chicago, and it wants to go to Broadway. So we'll see. I could totally see it working. I can see it working, for sure. I guess so. I mean, you're messing with a, a very high level already of of writing, but I guess if you match that, sure. I know what the opening number will be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I thought a little bit more about this movie, you know, because we were casting a critical eye on it. And I did think about it in relation to other movies that are like this, which for one, I don't think there are really other movies exactly yeah. <laughs> like this. There are certain movies that I like put in the same bucket. Like what? Well, the Brady Bunch movies, Adam's Family the movies. The Adam's Family movies, I really sure. In and Out. Movies that are like mid-level, dark-ish comedies or like more like in the in the case of like In and Out, like mature themes, I guess. Maybe Knives Out for a more recent example. Maybe, yeah. But like over-the-top, goofy, mid-budget <laughs> Mm-hmm. movies that aren't like a vehicle for i guess i have adam sandler in my head from last time <laughs> but like an snl guy or something yeah adam's family is like a good comparison at least for the at least the darkness i think like the sort of the tone like the kind of like there's a lot of grim stuff in this movie but also like delivered with like a fairly light touch dare i say this is a very gothic movie sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They got a lot of big castles, like yeah, or mansions that look like castles. Mansions, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. you can actually find in Beverly Hills. So, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like a lot of times a movie of this kind would not have a lot of substance to it. I feel like just because it is so campy and like mixing genres, and those movies don't always appeal to me because there isn't much there in terms of either character or theme. Or anything, but I do feel like this movie, for as breezy as it is in some ways, like actually feels very grounded in reality in a few different ways. One being the aging theme. I mean, I think it's like a really fun take on it's an exaggeration of plastic surgery, obviously, and other kind of like solutions that people try, which are only like I think increasing as time goes on since this movie, but like things that people do to counter affect aging. But here in Los Angeles, especially in Beverly Hills, obviously, like plastic surgery, like you will see women who have done kind of ghastly things occasionally to themselves, you know, trying to chase after youth. And so I think like it's a very smart take on that and just like the fear that everyone can relate to about mortality. And even when I was young, you know, like I didn't so much relate to like the exact like aging part of it, but like just the idea of mortality and wanting to like make the most of your time and like characters not wanting to give up what they once had. Like I could connect to that even like as a young person somehow, because I just like, that's part of being alive, you know, it's just that like things don't stay the same, you know, like you kind of have to like give into nature. So there's that. I think it's also like a surprisingly grounded portrayal of a marriage, not a flattering portrayal of a marriage, but like just I think their relationship feels very real and the way that they've drifted apart and basically like are not speaking to each other. You know, he's just like spending nights drinking and kind of is like 
lost and like feeling like a loser. And he's no longer a plastic surgeon. Now he is a undertaker. undertaker. Yeah, like he fixes dead bodies. And I thought it was really interesting. Again, economy of writing. His hand is shaking in the morning until he gets his Bloody Mary. Right. So like clearly he can't be a plastic surgeon anymore because he's an alcoholic because he's his hand shakes too much. So he has to work on dead bodies because they won't be like, ow. <laughs> Dr. Menville? Yes. Ernest Menville? Yes. Hi, I'm Vivian Adams. Hi. Have we met? Long ago, I never had a chance to thank you for the spectacular job you did with my Aunt Esther. Oh, uh, well, thank you very much. Her color. Her tone, you even brought out her cheekbones. Well, that's my job. It's almost a shame to bury her. It's so sweet of you to say that. Can I ask you what your secret is? Spray paint. You see, you can't just use regular makeup on dead skin. The pores are too dry. You've got to use a palette and practically grind the stuff in. So well, one day I'm in the hardware store and I think to myself, hey, what about mannequin paint? It's got its own chemical adhesive. Comes in an incredible variety of flesh. Excuse me. And that feels like a really real character to me. I mean, as broad as this movie is, that is something that, like, you see a lot of people go through. And this kind of marriage, I think you see this kind of marriage. The wife snapping at him and him, you know, being kind of emasculated. Like, you can just see that in Mm -hmm. life in certain places. Not every marriage, obviously. But, like, it's a pretty common, I think, dynamic. And then, like, the third thing that I thought was, like, really real is the friendship between the women and this competition that they have, especially around their looks and just, like, how it is very common for women to feel competitive about their looks. Men, too. You know, I don't want to just say it's women, but it's, like, an especially, like, female thing. And I think especially at the time this movie was made. Well, and socially, women are often primed to, you know, fight other women and tear other women. Yes, and kind of use a man as a scapegoat for, like, fighting each other, you know, where, like, at least a cliche is, like, women getting mad at each other over a man instead of, like, actually looking at the man and being like, hey, he's the one who's, like, playing both of us, you know? Like, that's something that you see happen a lot in, like, in movies and stuff. So I felt like this friendship was very real and I could relate to it of just, like, the feeling of competition with your friends and that whole seeing someone act nice to their friend but also you know that they secretly hate each other like these are all just like kind of like ugly parts of human relationships but also feel very true and even though I think they're exaggerated in this movie to a pretty extreme degree I I find them all so real and I think that's part of what drew me to this movie is that it felt real for as outlandish as things get I do feel like these characters are all kinds of people that you recognize from the real world and 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 their feelings are very raw like and I and I identify with them even though they're also kind of horrible people. Well, and not only that but like I I think we talked a little bit about the scene earlier but like when they have that scene that's kind of like their their confrontation their fight with each other where they hash everything out like you immediately know that this is all water under their respective bridges that they've been holding back for so so Mm -hmm. long and like this really is the first moment that they're having like an honest conversation with each other in a way that people who were good friends to each other would have. Like, you would air out those grievances at some point. 
Or you just wouldn't be friends anymore. Or you just wouldn't be friends anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And I just think, it, again, it, Chris, exactly to your point, like, as over the top as everything about it is, it is such a, an emotionally and dramatically grounded thing. You should learn not to compete with me. I always win. Ha! Ha! You may have always won, but you never played fair. Oh! Oh! I don't care how I played. I won! I'll just be upstairs. Yeah, that's because you could raise your legs higher and wider than anyone. And better! But look at you now. Yeah! You raise an eyebrow without major surgery. I've raised a lot more than an eyebrow in my day. You phony, hollow bitch! Yeah, well, you must have one and only talent. This was one more talent than you had, you former fatso! Helen's line talking about, like, they were all I had and you took them away from me. Not because you loved them, not because you cared, but just to hurt me. You hurt me on purpose. I mean, that's an amazing line, beautifully delivered, not just by me, but also by Goldie Hawn. <laughs> Goldie was a little better, I gotta say. Was she really? But also, I personally relate to that. Someone I was friends with at a certain point in my life, I knew at the time about one of the guys that I was into that I mentioned to him that he went after, but I recently realized that there were at least like several more that basically any time I told this former friend of mine that I was into a specific man, he would go after that man and mm. sleep with them and date them. And it's not a thing that I expected to necessarily emotionally connect with in this movie. But again, there were kind of a lot of moments of that. Like, it just really did resonate with me in a way that it hadn't before. Yeah, it's good at, like, getting these petty kind of things that, like, you don't necessarily like about yourself or your friends or people that you know maybe not even good friends but ex-friends and things like that but like they are real you know it all feels very like human and real which is again not the case for a lot of supernatural comedies or horror comedies like often it's the opposite in those where they're like kind of faking human emotions and you're like oh okay i don't have anything to relate to in that and then this like i relate to so much of it as crazy as it is i want to talk about the ending I love how this movie ends. I love that ending. I love it so much. I, I love that Ernest dies and they're at his funeral and it sounds like he had after, you know, he left their chaos tornado of the, of the two of them. I love that it sounds like he had a great life, lots of kids and he's dead, but it's good because he found love. He had children. He was a good man. He helped the world. There's all sorts of people at the funeral. There's like somebody in like African garb. Like it just, it's like very obvious. Like he, he was good to the world and the yeah. world loved him. Ah, but you see, far from being the Oh, what? You're not crying, are you? Brilliant metaphor. I'm not crying. Valuable I have something in my eye. As Ernest's greatest Oh. 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 Do you have that number nine acrylic? Look, I put it in your bag. Oh. Uh-oh. I must have dropped apart. it somewhere. You didn't drop it anywhere. Put it in your bag. Oh. Could drop a big can of spray paint, for God's sake. I had it when we left the car, okay? Let's get the hell out of here. Honestly, believe that this teacher, this benefactor... This man had, in his own way, learned the secret of eternal life. And it's here, among us, in the hearts of his friends, 
and the secret of eternal youth, right here in the lives of his children and his grandchildren. And it is my opinion that our beloved Ernest is one man who will indeed live forever. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the line when they're like, he found the truth of the like, secret to eternal life in his family and friends. And then Meryl goes, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Literally, I wrote that line. I wrote that down because that moment was like, really, that preacher basically sticks the knife in both of them at the same time. Like, he's, he literally sets the course of, you know, what looks like their death into motion at the very end. No, but I love the ending because they have no big reaction. This has probably happened a lot. <laughs> Oh, of so, course. And somehow they put themselves back together again. And they're like, well, I guess I'll just have to keep going on with my shitty friendship with you. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it is. I mean, there's an irony in that they have to be stuck together forever. You know, that's kind of what they realize, is especially when Ernest leaves them. They're like, well, I guess it's just us. And it's like funny because they deserve each other. <laughs> yeah. And they've yes. been, you yes. know, plotting to kill each other and hurt each other in various ways. And now it's like, oh, actually, we need each other. And so even though they're friends now, they're also only friends because it serves themselves. And I also do like that ending just thematically because it is kind of a lesson that everyone is chasing youth and like many people would take a potion like this. Give me one right now. I, I probably would. <laughs> you, didn't you watch the movie? <laughs> now I'll, I'll deal with it. Now you drink it? <laughs> Or would at least be tempted or to do, you know, something like a slightly less extreme, but to, you know, have extra years in your life or to look younger for longer, you know, like have your girl body back, you know, like Meryl Streep gets, you know, like a lot of people do do things for that and, and would do things for that. And yet the movie is basically saying, like, you are happier if you let nature take its course. Like, that's how you should live your life. And these women are <laughs> miserable having chosen this path. They like they, they got what they wanted in this kind of grotesque way. But it's not even that they got what they wanted and, and then it went to shit. It's that he had a better life because he did good deeds, like cared about the right things. And even though he died, his life was better than your immortal life where you're just bitching and complaining and like trying to kill people and like and probably spending most of their time like painting each other like <laughs> yeah. literally like worried about their literally own yes yeah. painting each other yeah mm -hmm. there is something ironic about the use of like actual paint like they're spray painting i love themselves. that so much but that like you know that's what makeup is in a way and especially like there are people who use like too much makeup to cover their flaws or their aging. And so I think that's an extended metaphor of that as well. Well, and that's also like the drag queen vocabulary is like painting when you're doing your makeup. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly like there's a lot of drag queen <laughs> parallels in this movie. Like they they definitely feel kind of like bitter drag queens in, the, in that final funeral scene. The drag queen Peaches Christ did an interview of the AV Club about why this is considered a queer movie. So this is what they said. Death Becomes Her could easily be a story about gay men and their value in the world being attached to their attractiveness and how connected we are to women in Hollywood in that regard. There is a real dark issue of ageism in relation to attractiveness and vanity that we don't talk about. And Death Becomes Her is essentially a mirror for us. That is very true and insightful. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I think that's a, like definitely a connection between, I think women can relate to this, a lot of women and a lot of gay men also, because I think that's true for both, is that like your viability is very tied to your youth.
I wanted to say that I really appreciated, especially the direction of the fantasy sequence where Helen is telling her plan for murdering Madeline. Yes. Um, yes. Just because I found it so unusual. Like Zemeckis does a lot with VFX and is inventive in that way, but I don't always imagine him as like a super like inventive filmmaker as like creating like really really interesting shots or just like using the camera in like super interesting ways there are definitely like moments of that in his other movies but with this one I just thought the way that is filmed is so memorable and like surreal like he's almost getting like very David Lynchy which might just be on my mind because I just rewatched Blue Velvet and also Isabella Rossellini hmm. so there's that but like I just thought it was like a like I watched this movie and was like he's being very experimental in this movie and other moments too like with the nuns coming by and like Bruce Willis is going to the yeah, morgue. The floating oh, yeah. nuns. What was up with the floating nuns? There's just a lot of weird touches. And I think like if he weren't Robert Zemeckis, if I was just watching this movie, I'd be like, who's this filmmaker? Wow, like he could make great horror movies. You know, it's not a mode that Zemeckis has really been in very much, but I think like he is just getting very inventive with this movie. And there's so many shots and just like the way that sequence is written and filmed, like where they're kind of like saying lines, but it's like this weird, surreal, dreamlike mm -hmm. version it of it. It feels very Coen-esque. Like, yeah. it feels very much like a sequence from a Coen Brothers movie. His cinematographer on this was Dean Cundy, who is kind of his regular cinematographer on basically all the other Zemeckis's we've talked about, also the cinematographer of Jurassic Park. But I think he did a particularly spectacular job with that sequence. I think it is, especially watching it this time, it leapt out even among like a movie that totally leapt out to me. Yeah, I would like to see, maybe it's too late, but if he could lean into that darkness again, because I think it actually suits him much better than I would imagine, just like based on the rest of his filmography. Are we good with Zemeckis now, or at least in the past? Because I feel like I've been a big defender, at least of his past work. Can we can we agree that it's good for the most part? I know you don't like Roger Rabbit, <laughs> Chris. Yes. Uh, well, what it's good like it's all it's all either good or yeah, okay. that's a very all encompassing. Okay. Question. So what we've done on this podcast is Forrest Gump, the three Back to the Future movies, Roger Rabbit, Contact, and Death Becomes Her. And I'm going to say, I love all of those movies. So I know that, I know that you're not very into Roger. I just, I guess I'm just like, feel like I'm defending somebody who we mostly have well, been so like, like. Back to the Future, I still have my thoughts on those. Forrest Gump, I still hate. No, that's the thing. Like I, <laughs> where I'm at now is qualitatively very different from where I was on Zemeckis when we began this, this podcast, which now has just become a Zemeckis podcast. <laughs> If his only three movies were Roger Rabbit, Contact, and this, then I would say he might be one of my favorite mm -hmm. filmmakers ever. And especially in the watchings of these movies for this podcast and doing these podcasts about his movies, I've come to appreciate what I love about his filmmaking so much more than I did. I, I did used to think I was overall not a Zemeckis fan. And I don't know if I'm overall a huge Zemeckis fan, but like... When he hits, he he hits like right on right on target. Very much so. I'll take that. <laughs> take it as a win. Take, take the W. I am. You. I'm taking it okay, as good, a win. Good. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's changed for me. I mean, I've always I've always loved Contact. I've always liked this movie. And so I feel like he's just very hit or miss. And like he's a very much a chameleon. Like the style of this movie doesn't necessarily feel like 
the style of contact. You know, at like all. At I wouldn't all. say contact these are, in general doesn't feel like a movie. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't think it's totally that it's dependent on the script or anything because I do feel like he has more of a hand in things than just that. But I mean, I do think that he's just like for whatever reason hits sometimes and misses sometimes. Well, and to your point, uh, one of the featurettes I watched was an interview. You know, and it kind of kept going back to him and kind of his whole thoughts and perspective on it at the time and now. And he said, like, he got it as the script and, like, it was the script that drove him to make this movie. And he said specifically, like, the dark comedy of it. Like, he wanted to make a dark comedy. I'm like, why haven't you made more? <laughs> it's so You're good at that. You're yeah. good at that. Why aren't you doing that? He hasn't, has he? He really hasn't. But I don't think any of his movies are, like, well, any of the movies that we've covered on this podcast are, like, poorly directed you know like i don't think roger rabbit is a bad version of roger rabbit or i don't think the back to the future movies are like poorly done in any way like he's obviously like doing those movies whether or not they work for like certain other reasons so and i think later you know he's just chosen yeah i poorly. i can agree on that i think it's a lot like tim burton that yeah. back, back in his heyday i think like it was like for me at least hit 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 oh my god you're one of my favorites and they've just like kind of fell off a cliff Yes. Yeah, and I think a part of that for both of them is, like, technology, because they have both kind of, like, crawled up a certain, like, CGI ass, basically, you know, where it's just, like, the effects kind of take over what they've done, and, like, this, what they do well or did well, like, gets kind of blown up in this way that's, like, becomes kind of unappealing. Well, yeah, and the, the pursuit of the effects became the end, rather than the pursuit of good storytelling done right. And that might also just be kind of an age thing on the theme of aging is like it is harder to be like as innovative as you once were when you are older. So certain people obviously can do it. But maybe for these particular type of filmmakers that are like their thing is like doing something new every time or doing something that's really like striking every time. I guess maybe you can't you just can't keep that up forever and you should just age and die like Bruce Willis in this movie <laughs> instead of trying to be Madeline and Helen instead and, of trying and, to live forever. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all the time we have left on Earth in this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episodes, we'll examine the American dream as pursued by two iconic male antiheroes of modern American cinema. Aspirationally murderous Cuban coke lord Tony Montana, played by Al Pacino in the 1983 drug thriller Scarface. And insatiably perfectionist Wall Street serial killer Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale in the 2000 horror film American Psycho. We'll go into why these movies made waves in their time, why they're still controversial today, and how these characters' extremely bloody personalities and business approaches made lasting impressions on some of these movies' most ardent fans. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts, and rate and review us so that more people see the show. You can contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young so we can bring you more episodes of the show for free. I'm Seth. I'm a girl. And I can see my ass. <laughs> what do I see? That's the question I'm most afraid of. One that asks me what I What do I see? Much more than I
It's me. 